that was how to make the elixir of life and holy grail. Next up. I'm a mortal. Your source for all things immortal. I'm Jeremy Cohen. I'm a cultural anthropologist uh, based at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario. And I uh, do ethnographic research on communities and new religious movements, people who are trying to live forever, trying to figure out ways of, of extending their lives uh, radically. Okay, wow. That's a lot of interesting terms. There. So I guess to start off with, what does a day in your life exactly look like? Because I know you're, I believe, in the middle of your dissertation. What is, what's, what's the whole ethnographic... What, what, I guess, what is Jeremy Cohen all about, really? Well, it depends. If I'm out in the field, my day looks very different than it does right now. Obviously, COVID has um, put a wrench in, in a lot of uh, field work plans. But when I'm doing field work, I'm waking up, going to get breakfast, and then I'm meeting research participants. I'm conducting interviews in coffee shops. And then with the main community that I research, I am you know, in the evening, going to their meetings and writing notes, scribbling down as, as fast as I can. And then when I'm done, I go back to wherever it is that I'm staying um, and then try my best to write even more notes. Um, right now, uh, a day in my life is finishing my dissertation, trying to get the seven courses I'll be teaching next year in order. Um, and trying to keep up with my research communities as, as best as I can. Mm -hmm. So obviously we're going to ask this question. As you know, our podcast is called I'm Immortal, kind of a play on the words immortal. So what does the word immortal or immortality mean to you? I was giving this some thought, um, and I, I might not have a concise definition necessarily, but when I think about immortality, um, I think about humanness. It's one of those things alongside death that seems to connect people across time and, and across culture, right? Um, you know, we have ancient Sumerian texts uh, that, you know, tell these, these epics about the search for immortality, ancient Chinese, you know, and um, their search for alchemical solutions. And, you know, now, all of these technological possibilities that are being envisioned and that people are working towards. It is something that that really does seem to connect us and not even just in um, the obvious ways that I, I've just said, but, you know, thinking about ancestor veneration, thinking about the ways in which the living and the dead interact in so many cultures and, and have done so uh, for so long. So when I think of immortality, honestly, I, I think of being human. Huh. I feel like that's the most broad answer we've had so far, because mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's touching on more so like the generational aspects, also the desire for humanity to become immortal, which has been around for a really long time. So on that question, I guess, do you also have a desire to potentially have an extended life or be immortal? That's a difficult question for me. I feel like I'm very much on the fence with that. There's a lot of things that I find really appealing about it. And there's a lot, um, especially within transhumanism, let's say that techno optimism and that desire to alleviate suffering and pain. I'm on board. I think that's excellent. 
I have no issues with that. And, and, you know, um, I'm 35 and I already have arthritis and Alzheimer's runs in my family. And so when I think about growing old, you know, uh, there, there's not a lot of, um, the future doesn't necessarily seem super pleasant in, in that sense. And so in that way, I'm, I'm all for it. And, and when I think about all the experiences that we have and the experiences that I've had and want to have moving forward, the idea of those things ending is problematic for me. However, at the same time, death is what greets us. It is what has greeted us and what will continue to greet us for the foreseeable future, in my opinion. Um, and so we do need to come to terms with that in, in some way. Um, you know, we can talk about this maybe later in the podcast, but, uh, you know, I, through my research, I've come to a, a self-understanding as a death-positive transhumanist. Oh, okay. So I'm all, yeah, I'm all for the the techno optimism. I'm all for the alleviation of human and non-human suffering. Um, but so long as death remains a constant and death remains something that we all need to deal with, I think that we should have open and honest conversations about it. Huh. Well, I guess you answered my question because my follow-up was going to be, are you do, you, do you consider yourself a transhumanist? And you do. Um, but my question now, because... Now on topic, just to get a general idea of where you're coming from. So we, some people we've talked to, they actually don't have a fear of death, but they have a fear of the infinite, a paraphobia, something like along the lines. I'm, I'm curious, because like, it seems like contradictory, like can you have a fear of both? But do you have a fear of immortality in the sense of just existing forever as well? Or is the fear of death, much, I guess, a much stronger driver for you? I don't necessarily have a fear of immortality. I think a lot of times people will bring up concerns and fears as a way of delegitimizing these ideas. Like, oh, you want to live forever. You're going to get bored. There's, you know, there's only so many things you can do in this life. And I don't think that that's true. I think, um, you know, for your, uh, your listeners who might be interested, there's a philosopher, uh, John Martin Fisher, who writes a lot about the badness of death and, and talks a lot about or argues against a lot of these criticisms of transhumanism and, and of the drive for immortality. I can't imagine myself actually getting bored. You know, there are so many things and so many things to see and so many things to do. Um, and I, I don't necessarily have a fear of death. I'd say I have a fear of dying. Um, I have a fear of the suffering that comes with it, which is something in, in my research, I, a lot of the transhumanists and immortalists that I've spoken to, that's something that resonates with them as well. It's not necessarily a fear of death. It's the fear of what comes with it. The, you know, yeah, the suffering, the incontinence, the pain. It, it, these are the the unpleasant aspects of, of dying um, that nobody really wants to go through necessarily. So jumping back a little bit, because I realized we should probably should have asked this earlier, but based on your last name, I would suspect a Jewish background and yet just because as far as i know jewish being jewish unlike some other religions is not really tied to a doctrine it's also an ethnicity i believe so it's it's like you know if you're a jewish it doesn't mean you've gone to a synagogue i guess is what i'm trying to say right but 
I also not sure what sparked such a strong interest in religions and culture for you. Do you mind explaining sort of like that career journey? Because, you know, you didn't have to do a PhD, right, Jeremy? Yeah, no, definitely. Um, I think the interest really was sparked by a teenage rebellious phase uh, in my life, which is somewhat, you know, which has continued to a certain degree. Um, I considered myself a uh, you know, participant in the new atheist movement for the longest time. I was, you know, a huge fan of, of Richard Dawkins and, and Christopher Hitchens. Um, although now having done a religious studies degree and understand, uh, you know, the complexities involved in however you define religion, I am not as much a fan of those writers as, as I used to be. Um, but I, I, started taking religious studies courses because I wanted to learn how to argue against religionists. Um, and, but once I was in that world, um, you know, I realized that things were a lot more, or, you know, things are complex, humans are complex. Um, you know, what's written in religious texts is not necessarily a reflection of, of people's religiosity. And when it comes to transhumanism and, and these topics, my interest was sparked through uh, my religious studies degree at Concordia. Um, I actually took a course on popular religion and we had to do a group presentation um, on some aspect of day-to-day -day life that is not religious in the sense of being institutional religion, but exhibits a lot of religious topics or you know religious um, themes. And so people chose sports fandom or, you know, uh, people who are obsessed with pop stars. My group chose transhumanism. And so we looked at uh, the movie Transcendent Man about Ray Kurzweil. And at the time I was really shy and I did not want to speak in front of the course. There was maybe about 200 students. Uh, and so my group decided or convinced me to wear a uh, cardboard Halloween costume of a robot and hold a sign that said the singularity is near uh, in front of these 200 people, which I instantly realized is way more embarrassing <laughs> than speaking yep. a few lines in front of people. Um, but it was that moment and, and doing that project that really cemented my interest in transhumanism and, and my interest in, um, in death, uh, death studies and, and religious studies as well. So now that we've talked a little bit about your interest in religion and I guess transhumanism, uh, we wanted to ask, because we know you're very big on talking about death, uh, which we'll talk about more later, but how has your idea of death changed over, you know, your entire education and delving into this field, doing all of this it's work? It's a good question. I mean, in a certain sense, it's not that that has changed my view on death, but it's experiencing it. Um, you know, I've... You know, I grew up in uh, listening to, to punk and metal, um, and that subculture tends to have a very morbid streak to it. Um, and I've had some close calls with death myself, um, and I, but I, I never really experienced what it is like to lose people in our lives. And so I started, my, my MA originally was doing research on online memorialization. My wife um, owns a company um, that does online memorials. We're connected to this large network of death professionals, funeral professionals. Um, but I always felt very disconnected to 
the realities of, of dying, uh, realities of death, like what it actually means. Um, and it wasn't until well, I had two experiences. One was um, seeing my great uncle dying in the hospital. Um, and that was really one of my first visceral kind of embodied experiences watching someone die in front of me. And connected to that because a few weeks later, I started doing my field work um, at RADFest, um, which is um, the Revolution Against Aging and Death Festival that uh, is, is held by the community that I, I research. Um, and being at this conference surrounded by people who did not want to die and were there, you know, fighting this deathist paradigm, I ended up having a panic attack you know, with my uncle, my great uncle in mind, and, and, you know, the situation that I was in, all of a sudden, all of these feelings that I think I may have repressed or hid came bubbling up. Um, and, and I ended up having to go and, and take a break in my hotel room because I just couldn't handle um, the hope that I was seeing in this room that death was something that, you know, the people there did not have to go through and this claim that they didn't have to go through it. Um, and so, yeah, you know, I, I guess in that sense, the research has changed my perspectives on death, but it really is about my own ability to think and talk about it through experiencing loss and experiencing you know, the, the grief that comes with, with losing the people we love in our lives. Now I have to ask, because as far as I know, I mean, maybe you're an interesting case where I always thought like the death positive community, like let's say you're a death doula, was always opposed to transhumanism and all the people who are in the aging community, like they're like, oh, you, you, you accept death. That's terrible. You should never accept death. Are you in the middle? Like, I'm not sure how you reconcile being in both communities. Like, how, how is that even possible? Well, and this is part of my research as well, is I am comp trying to complicate some of these ideas that we have, right? That everyone in the death positive community holds a particular view and people within the anti-aging community holds, you know, the opposite view. Things are a lot more complicated. And, and I have found that people are often in the middle in the same way that I am. Um, and I mean, your first interview was with Dennis Kowalski of um, the Cryonics Institute. And if you go onto the Cryonics Institute website, there's an interview with him where he has an entire discussion about death positivity, right? And I mean, Cryonics is a special case because a lot of people accept that they are going to have to die in order to be able to live forever. Um, and so there is a certain amount of death acceptance that's necessary for um, cryonics members. Um, but these kinds of conversations are, are possible. Um, I, I don't want to name names, but I've spoken with and I'm friends with some bigger names in the transhumanist world. And I've had these deep intellectual conversations about the realities of death and dying with them. Um, and many of them accept the fact that they are probably going to have to die or that the people in their lives are going to die. And no matter what your view on death is, you're going to have to contend with that at a certain point. Um, and so I think that these kinds of conversations are, are complicated. Um, having said that, 
if you go by YouTube comments, um, the death positive community definitely, definitely, definitely hates the transhumanist community and cannot understand what they're doing and vice versa. You know, there definitely is this like vitriol between the two communities, you know, the deathist versus the death positive um, movement. Um, but it, it, it likes so many things that it, it's a lot more complicated once you actually start speaking with people. And once you start having these conversations, you know, I've, I've, again, I've had very, very deep and emotionally charged conversations with transhumanists about the reality of death, you know, and you can want that paradigm to end. You can want the defeat of death and still have open and honest conversations about its reality right now. Um, yeah, you know, at, at Radfest, there was one presenter who went up on stage, you know, and even and told the crowd, go, go to hospice, you know, like, if you guys want to do something good for people right now, like death is still the reality, people are suffering, go to hospice, volunteer at hospice, and spend time with the dying. Like, that's what you should do. And this is what a presenter was telling the audience at the Revolution Against Aging and Death Festival. So yeah, it's all to say, I think that there is a lot of room for this middle ground and a lot of room for conversations with both. So Jeremy, now that we've talked a bunch about, I guess, how people accept death, how I, I'm hoping, or with this question, I'm hoping you also accept your death to a certain degree to be able to answer this. How do you think you will die? How do you imagine your own death? I don't know if I have. I don't know if I can. I mean, I think about all the ways that I don't want to die. Um, <laughs> you know, I don't want to die in a fire. I don't want to drown. I don't want these awful experiences. I think like most people, if, you know, if I am not able to, to live long enough to live forever, right, if I'm not able to make it to the singularity or if I'm not able to make it to some point in time where science is able to reverse aging, you know, I hope that I will die at 95, surrounded by loved ones, comfortably in a bed, you know, able to, um, you know, say my goodbyes, right? It's this kind of idealized good death that, let's face it, a lot of mostly white, well-off people are able to have in North America. Um, and although I have my problems with um, Heidegger, I do tend to believe what he says when when he claims that, you know, death is that is the one thing in life that we can never experience, right? It is the one thing that is our our own most. No one can take our place in death. We are all going to experience it. But then paradoxically, it is also something that we will never actually experience. Um, in the same way that you don't remember what life in quotes was like before you were born, you're, you're not going to know what it was, what it's going to be like after. Um, so I've, I've, you know, I've thought about it, but I have a really hard time, like really conceptualizing, really putting myself in, in that position. And okay, I guess maybe a question that you might be able to answer better is because we've heard a lot about your perspectives on death. And as far as I know, at least, I feel like there might, maybe it's only Canada or North America, but I feel like there's been a shift maybe in thought about how we think of death where maybe before, maybe it's just who I'm around, but a lot of people used to mourn death. And now I feel like it's more like a celebration of life sort of ordeal. But is that universal across 
cultures all across the globe? Or are there certain philosophies about death that are different from what I might experience in Canada? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it is, you are, there are, the cultural variations of death are too expansive to, to you know, like to properly go through. And, and although we have this idea that in North America, we're a death denying culture, and people will often point to transhumanism and point to immortality as, as proof of that. I mean, the reality is that we engage with death in North America in a number of ways. I mean, even having these kinds of conversations about avoiding death is a way of engaging with it. Um, you know, we see death in video games and movies. I mean, obviously we go to funerals, like we have conversations with, um, you know, we have conversations at the graveside. There are all these ways that we, we connect with the dead, but in other places in the world, there are different ways that they do that. Right. In Indonesia, when someone dies, you know, they're not considered dead. Well, in some parts of Indonesia, um, they're not considered dead um, until weeks, months, or even years after their biological death, right? And people will keep their loved ones in the home and they'll uh, essentially mummify them um, in places like Mexico and some parts of Latin America. You know, the dead are understood to travel to another realm, but every year they come back. And so the relationship between the living and dead is is always collapsible, right? There, There's not necessarily this huge distinction in the way that often it's conceptualized that we have that in, in North America. I'm just going to jump back for a quick second, uh, use this term that I wanted to ask you to define earlier called good death. For the audience, could you just just describe what or briefly what exactly a good death is so a good death is essentially an ideal that we hold about the proper way to die um, and it has a very long history in western christianity um, so you have uh, scholars like philip ariez who traces these notions of how people die well from the middle ages through to today um, and you know, at one point, the way that someone died a good death was to die a hero's death, let's say. Um, and then when you get into the Victorian era, the way that that someone had a good death was actually kind of how I described earlier, that you are, you know, you are going to know when it is that you're going to die. Um, you are able to articulate your final wishes that you're surrounded by loved ones. And that was the ideal good death at that time in, in European culture and in North American culture. Um, and today, notions of a good death are variable. You know, for some people, a good death might occur in a hospital. Um, in some parts of Ghana, in fact, the ideal is to die in a hospital, you know, it, because it shows that you have a certain level of prestige and, you know, you can afford the care at a hospital. Um, here in North America, that's maybe a little less so. I think people still want to be able to die at home and, and want to decide when to die. Um, and the, a good death has been a big part of the discourse within the death positive movement. But it is a complicated discourse because when people are talking about the good death, 
or a good death now, they are typically talking about a sanitized experience of dying that is available to white upper class or, or white people who are well off, right? Um, there's a lot of communities, indigenous communities and, and black communities and, uh, you know, that don't have that luxury, right? They're, there's, they don't have the luxury of being able to prepare for their time of death at 90 years old. Um, so yeah, the, a good death is this cultural construct that has changed through time, but is, is an ideal way of of dying. So I'm going to switch gears here using Sufal's phrase, but I mean, it, it would be a shame not to talk a little bit about religion, given that you're in the Department of Religious Studies. Um, but I know that we've had a lot of guests on so far that they're like, they've studied one religion for the past 30 years. And you, you kind of know a lot about a lot, <laughs> if that's accurate to say. Um, so I thought it'd be appropriate to ask you sort of what makes a religion a religion and what why they exist at all like the purpose they serve because it's it's every culture i feel like has a religion and i'm not sure i feel like i can't explain why but maybe you'd have a better way of explaining it to us so as a religious studies scholar it is my duty to say that i have absolutely no idea what a religion is or how to define it um it is a it is a complicated question um, with complicated answers. And, you know, we have entire departments of religious studies, right? Uh, but they tend to or have a history, uh, a very Christian centric history. And so historically, when you look at definitions of religion, they tend to be really based around belief, right? which is very Christian. Um, Islam and Judaism, for example, are very practice oriented religious systems. Um, and then you also have distinctions between institutional religions and, you know, your new age individualistic spiritual religions, you know, the people who claim to be spiritual, but not religious. And how scholars like myself approach religion and how we look at religion as a lived experience is often even, you know, different from the people that we study, right? Like the community that I study, in my mind, have a lot of the, the I guess, classic definitions of religion, right? They, are, they have a system of meaning making, they have leaders that they look to, they have a quote unquote belief system. Um, but if you were to ask any of them, I'm thinking about the immortalist community that I study, they would say, no, 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 we are not a religion. We are absolutely not a religion. Um, you know, we don't, uh, you know, we don't make anyone go to a church. We don't make people, you know, subscribe to dogma and things like that. And so, yeah, how someone like myself is going to look at it and how someone within a community is going to look at it is very different. And, you know, the function that religion serves is also a difficult question because often or in the past, people have used kind of functionalist accounts of religion uh, to pigeonhole certain communities or to differentiate other communities from Christianity, especially, right? So religion serves a function of ensuring that we don't all uh, go crazy from debilitating anxiety, or, you know, it serves a function of social cohesion. Well, that's great, but what about when it doesn't? You know, what about when a religious community has infighting and sectarianism? 
Uh, so it's, it is again, very difficult question. I mean, if I were to boil it down to maybe one sentence, I would, and this is a problematic sentence, I'd say it's a system of meaning making. It is a way for people to find meaning in some capacity, in some way in the world, whether that's through a deity or through belief in the self, what have you, um, that, that would be it. Funnily enough, as not a religious scholar, I feel like that's how I would describe it using that problematic sentence. Yeah, but uh, moving on, uh, how often is this idea of immortality or not dying tied to religion? Like, I know there's a lot of religions that have their um, figure, their figure above them to be an immortal figure, or they themselves, once they pass away, become immortal. Does every culture or religion consider immortality? I mean, I can't speak to every culture and religion, but it does seem to be somewhat universal. It is something that you do see often in very different ways. So for some religion, religious systems, for some cultures, um, it's very much symbolic immortality. So you have ancestor veneration, you have um, these ways in which the dead continue to interact with the living and the living interact with the dead in some way. Um, which, you know, you could consider to be a form of immortality. Um, Christianity and Judaism and Islam all have their own conceptions of immortality. Um, there's obviously for uh, Islam and Christianity, you have a heavenly realm, but then there's also the return of the Messiah for all three of those monotheistic religions, you know, at which point we'll all be resurrected and, um, you know, brought back from the dead. Um, so it's, you know, it's not, I, I'm hesitant to say that it is something that is universal, but in some form, in some way, be it really this embodied idea or more symbolic idea, it does seem that immortality is something that is cross-cultural. You know, people want to People, you know, if, if you go according to terror management theory, you know, people strive to be able to find meaning in their lives or meaning in what it is that they're doing. And oftentimes death disrupts that, right? Obviously it disrupts that. And so we have found ways to ensure that what we do in this world continues in some, some capacity. So... I mean, because all the forms of, I guess, seeking immortality that you mentioned with the with the Abrahamic ones and the, the karmic religions, they are sort of, well, I mean, the karmic ones, it's much more in your hands, supposedly. But are there any that focus on a, like a practical immortality that you can achieve it here on Earth through your own means? Yeah, there, I mean, there's um, Taoism and I think Taoism, Tao... I, Eastern religions are not my specialty, so I um, I will not pretend to know everything there is to know about Eastern religions, but I know that um, there are, or there have been and continue to be these Taoistic uh, practices of achieving immortality. You know, these ways that especially monks are able to fast um, and, you know, they have these bodily regimes that allow them to live forever um, and you know sometimes that means that the monks themselves become mummified 
um, and live in another plane. Um, sometimes they disappear altogether and it's understood that they are just living in a, you know, in a secret cave in a mountain somewhere, but they are immortal. So in that sense, there is this notion of practical immortality. Um, and Russia um, also has a history with religious movements that have claimed the possibility of um, practical physical immortality. Um, I think Fedorovism is possibly that. Um, I could be wrong about that. So maybe don't quote me on that. But um, and in North America, um, although it is not as popular today, um, but Christian science um, in its origin, uh, New Thought Movement in its origin, which is which Christian science is an offshoot of, you know, these uh, late 19th century or mid 19th to late 19th century Christian or Christian adjacent movements, these health reform movements that told their members that if you eat the right food, you know, do the right practices, think the right way. Um, that you can live forever in this body right now. And the community that I study in Arizona, even though they would not self-describe as being a religion um, or, you know, a spiritual movement, um, they also hold to that view that they are going to be able to live forever in the now, as long as they do the right practices and think like an immortalist. To kind of wrap up on this whole conversation we've been having about religion and I guess cultures to a certain degree, um, how often is it that a new religious ask or religious community pops up? And is there typically a reason as to why? Like, is it usually just based off of one belief or et cetera? I mean, there are thousands of new, what we would call new religious movements out there. Mm -hmm. um, there have been thousands in North America for the past century. There are um, I, I can't think of the number off, off the top of my head right now, but yeah, there are thousands and thousands of these new religious movements and there are a number of theories as to why these pop up um, and why they, you know, there are these moments where you, it seems like there are, uh, you know, the, a growth in new religious movements. Um, you know, you saw in the 1960s, you saw the birth of um, you know, Scientology and Harry Krishna and a lot of these transcendental meditation groups, you know, and that had a lot to do with the United States open or changing immigration rules, but also the threat of nuclear war and, you know, the, the, the ever present possibility that the world won't be there tomorrow. Um, and you saw that a little bit with, you know, the years leading up to the year 2000 and then 2012 as well. Um, but the reality is that with or without those kinds of social tensions, new groups are popping up all the time. Um, sometimes people um, will follow a charismatic leader or, or follow someone who has a particular idea. And over time, those get developed into some form of, you know, some coherent worldview of, of some kind that attracts people. Um, and some of these movements last for a couple of years, some last for decades, um, some have lasted for over a century and are still going strong. Well, I guess you have to speculate um, on my next question, yeah. but because, you know, we're talking about life extension quite a lot. Um, how do you see that sort of technology affecting or maybe even disrupting the current religions that already exist or even the rate of new religions coming about because I know for Taoism, 
the answer is at least from Livia Cohen was the Taoists will say if we get if we achieve practical immortality through science, apparently the Taoists will say, Yeah, we we're right, told you so. But what do you think in terms of the other religions you're more well versed in? Well, I'm I'm happy that you guys interviewed a, an expert on Taoism because um, I feel like I embarrassed myself. So, you know, all your listeners just go listen to that interview and ignore everything I said. I guess I, I'm not really sure, you know, people for a long time now in the Western world have been predicting the end of religion, right? And oftentimes that has been tied into um, into science and technology. So, you know, with the industrial revolution and, and with the, you know, the theory of evolution and, and all of these um, huge changes that were occurring in, in the 18th and 19th century, you know, people were predicting that as people become more quote unquote rational and more scientific and as technology progresses, there's not going to be a need for religion anymore, right? Going back to that question about functionalism, what's the function of religion? Um, you know, so the idea was that, well, it, religion won't serve a function anymore because people will not need to, you know, rely on a on a god or rely on deities because we'll have science and technology to answer for everything. And, and I'm seeing that type of conversation continue in transhumanism um, and in the, the realm of immortality, you know, all like once we're able to colonize space, no more religion. Um, you know, people were, were, we're not going to need gods when we're traveling through the universe, but you have sociologists like Will, William Sims Bainbridge, um, who is saying, well, no, we are, religion's never going to go away. People are going to need religion, however that looks like. Although William Sims Bainbridge has a, a, a particular vision of what that, you know, religion might look like in the future, but he's even calling for a new religious movement based on, you know, the transhumanist teleology, you know, the transhumanist vision of the future. Like we need a new religion for space colonization, you know, for when we're immortal and where our brains are uploaded to computers and we can travel around the galaxy, you know, we are going to need a religion to bind us together, um, to give us some type of coherent system of meaning. Um, and whether that's true or not, I can't say, but so far, all of the theories that the more secular we become and the more, you know, uh, scientific and rational, the less we'll need religion. None of those have been proven true. In fact, in many respects, we are more religious today than at any other point in history, right? Evangelical Christianity is growing in many parts of the world. Um, you know, people, you know, people are not going to churches, but they are integrating, you know, new age and these spiritualities of life in, in particular ways as well. So I'm not sure what a religion in the future or what religion in the future is going to look like, but that there will be religion, however defined, I think is probably a certainty. Mm -hmm. uh, actually, you made a perfect segue for me by mentioning transhumanism. We've already talked about transhumanism and we know you are a transhumanist, but could you define very, it doesn't have to be briefly, but could you define what transhumanism is necessarily? So uh, transhumanism is a philosophy, a worldview, a practice um, that aims to overcome the human condition. Um, and oftentimes that is related directly to death. 
but that can also be about bodily and uh, mental limitations as well, um, which is where I think I personally diverge from transhumanism um, in that uh, I think I'm a little I'm a little more apprehensive about the human augmentation, you know, the bodily and mental augmentation part of uh, the transhumanist vision of the future than a lot of than well, most transhumanists are. Um, but yeah, I would define it for me, it really is, you know, this kind of melding of culture, philosophy, worldview and, and practice, you know, that uh, Natasha, Natasha Vita Moore said this to me once that transhumanism is a practice, you practice your transhumanism um, by, you know, by the types of conversations that you have and the regimens that you maintain um, and the, the, you know, I guess the belief systems that you hold in, in that way. Wow. Practice transhumanism sounds a lot like a religion there. <laughs> um, but I guess to ask, because the argument we often hear from, I guess, against transhumanism is in terms of all the wild technologies, you know, is that it's not natural. But now it comes to the question where, I guess, do you think it's natural or it is natural that we will eventually overcome the basic biology that evolution's given to us? Like whether we want to or not, is there just some sort of intrinsic human drive to just you know, create something of ourselves that mother nature just couldn't? I don't think it's an intrinsic drive, but that drive is there. Um, you know, and what we consider to be natural nature, you know, and, and, and its opposite is always situated in a particular time and culture, right? And so it's, I have a hard time um, with, the arguments, you know, on both sides that say, well, it is, you know, like to live forever is to go against human nature. Well, what is human nature? Why is that, you know, like, why is that the hill that you are willing to, no pun intended, to die on, right? Like, why do you, like, why, why that? Um, and, you know, I really like uh, Donna Haraway's um, essay on on being a cyborg right where she kind of deconstructs these nature versus culture dichotomies and looks at the cyborg as a way of you know um part of my language but fucking with gender and and with what we consider to be normal and, and natural and and reconfiguring all of these um yeah all of these dichotomies that, that we've created um and so i don't necessarily I don't think that we have any innate drive in, in one way or another towards wanting to overcome um, human limitations, but that drive is, is definitely there. Um, but that drive is cultural. It's specific to, to now, you know, like we've always been technological in some degree. We've always sought to augment ourselves. We've always sought to challenge limitations to a certain degree you know eyeglasses um you know the fur you know lighting a fire right is is technology to a certain degree um the difference now is just the level of that technology and and what we are able to accomplish right lighting a fire is not necessarily or is not going to change your genetics uh, but now we are 
getting to the point where we have the technology to, to do so. We talked about cryonics very briefly earlier in this conversation. So what's your opinion on cryonics? I know you've spoken to uh, people from Alcor before. So what do you think? I'm really fascinated by cryonics. Um, I have a research paper out um, about cryonics and um, I like I like the idea. I think uh, it is something that I might even uh, my wife would kill me if she heard me say this, but I think it's something <laughs> that I would want to participate in. I like the ethos of, well, what do you have to lose, right? If it doesn't work, you're dead anyways. And if it works, great, you have an opportunity um, as long as, as science is able to, to live again. Um, and I mean, I watch a lot of Star Trek, might not be a surprise uh, to anyone, but just thinking about the possibility of, of being able to see um, a world in the future that is reminiscent of that. It, it, it just, you know, that possibility I think is really, really interesting um, and appealing to me in a lot of ways. Um, but, but knowing full well, and I've, I've never met a cryonicist who has said with absolute certainty, cryonics will work. It, it will 100% work no matter, you know, no matter what you tell me, I know it's gonna work. They've all been very pragmatic um, and have, you know, accept that it might not happen, but hey, what do you have to lose, right? Um, except for a few hundred thousand. But aside from that, what do you have to lose? Um, and chronics has also fascinated me because, you know, going back to death positivity or going back to conversations around death, chronics kind of demands a very pragmatic relationship to death. You know, you have to plan for the end of your life in a way that you're not necessarily seeing in other communities because that's not the practical reality but if you want to be a cryonics patient you need to know where it is that you're going to die if you have the luxury of you know dying at a time of your choosing um you know you need to you know you need to have all of your affairs in order your advanced directives your do not resuscitate order you know you need to have all these things you need to engage with death and i've actually even heard from um a cryonic a, a, a well-respected cryonics member that you know one of the reasons why cryonics has not gained mass appeal even amongst transhumanists is that it demands a certain level of engagement with death that just makes a lot of people uncomfortable, which is paradoxical, right? It's not what you would expect from a technology that promises or suggests eternal life. Oh, man. See, I'm, gu I'm guessing if you sign up now, Jeremy, I mean, we have a little bit of bias because we had someone from Chronics Institute come on, but it sounds like you might be uh, leaning towards Alcor, possibly. <laughs> Only because I've done my my field work with Alcor, um, and I know Max Moore and uh, Linda Chamberlain, and I, you know I know a lot of the people at Alcor, um, and you know that is true. That is actually a bias when and when I do talk about Cryonex, I do instinctively say Alcor, um, but hmm. there are yeah you know three other Cryonex facilities, and there's Cryo Rus in Russia. Um, so yeah, that is definitely a bias on on my part there. But you know there are no. I, I, won't, I won't pick favorites. Uh, I mean, we have our bias too, very obviously. <laughs> but I guess to follow up, because we earlier we talked about what the people in the death community would be accepting of like life extension therapies. But then you just talked about how there's a certain level of acceptance with death needed for if you're involved in cryonics. 
so I don't know if you're a unique case with being involved, I guess, being involved in death as much as you are, but would you say other people in the death community that you're part of, regardless of cost, I guess from a, like a philosophy point of view, would they also be interested in chronics or are they, is that something they'd stray away from? They would probably, uh, no, not probably. They would almost certainly not be in favor of it because it goes against, um, in, in their view, it goes against, um, the directive to have these open and honest conversations and to accept mortality. Uh, but I, I have found that in having conversations with people in the death positive realm, when you actually talk about cryonics and you talk about the motivation that people have for cryonics and the types of conversations that people have um, when they are signing up for cryonics or, or when they are preparing for the end of their life, um, people, you know, I, they still, I don't think would sign up for cryonics, but they definitely soften their views on it. Um, and the, the paper I wrote actually was about the connections between um, the death positive movement and the medical aid and dying movement um, and cryonics, because cryonics has been a huge supporter of medical aid and dying legislation. Um, because it would benefit their members to be able to choose when they want to die and, you know, be able to end their lives before a brain tumor destroys their brain tissue. Right. Um, and so in the process of writing that paper, I had a lot of conversations with death doulas and, and death workers um, about cryonics and all of them were just really surprised that organizations like cryonic or like Alcor and cryonics Institute would be in support of these kinds of technologies because in their mind, it's just completely antithetical, but you know, there, there are all of these commonalities. Having said that, I cannot, and I cannot imagine that anyone in involved in the death positive community would uh, sign up for cryonics. Fair, fair. So do you think technologies like I would call cryonics a technology as well as other technologies like mind uploading and all these other things that promote, I guess, either dying and coming back to life or potentially, oh no, I guess mind uploading is the same concept of dying and coming back to life to a certain degree. Do you think they count as forms of potential immor immortality or life extension? I mean, I definitely think, well, that's a good question. And I've had actually quite a few drunken debates with people about this because <laughs> yeah, it's the, what is it called? The ship of Theseus debate. I probably, I probably butchered that, but you know, the, how many planks on the ship can you replace before it's no longer that ship anymore? Right. And mm -hmm. for proponents of mind uploading, um, that isn't necessarily a question, right? The, what, what matters is the mind. And as long as you transfer the mind um, or consciousness into a machine, then that counts as, as immortality. Uh, but my question would be, you know, does, does it matter if, you know, Sioux fall, like if your brain gets transferred to a machine and you know, that entity in the machine isn't you in the sense that there isn't an actual continuity. It is now a new person. It might have the memories of Sioux Fall, but it's not necessarily Sioux Fall. Like, does that count as immortality? Like, is that something that people want? I imagine that people would want more of a seamless transition, right? Just to be able to move from one body to another. Um, but I don't, 
I, I find that often um, those things are are conflated in conversations about this. People just assume, okay, well, if some sense of personhood continues on, then that's fine and that's all that matters. I, but I don't see the, personally. I don't see the point. If I, if it's not me to a large enough degree, um, then I don't. I don't see that it matters. Um, I think a more interesting question is whether or not it will those technologies will actually ever exist, which I think is. Um, I think a, a, a obviously a difficult question, and uh, you know we can't predict the future. Uh, but is well, let's just say it's something that has led to a lot more drunken conversations between myself and other, <laughs> other transhumanists. I mean, I was gonna say if, for people who uh, who didn't want to go directly to mind uploading, I did hear the argument of maybe you want to like replace one neuron at a time with some sort of nano chip, and maybe if that makes you feel more comfortable, then sure, go ahead. Um, I mean, listen, we don't even understand how I don't know. Yeah, like we don't understand how the brain works. We don't really even know why it is that we sleep. Um, and, you know, you're ex expecting people to believe that in the next 10 to 15 years, we're going to have the technology to, you know, transfer consciousness, whatever that is, into a machine. Anyways, this yeah. is um, <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah, we don't need to get started because like there's so many papers on like if you split the brain in half, you have right brain and Sally and left brain and Tom. Which one is the right? Oh my God, it's terrible. Mm. Um, yeah, that's why my research, I do not engage questions of bioethics whatsoever uh, because I I mean, as I find it interesting as a drunken conversation, um, but as a, a real topic, I think there's much more interesting things to to be talking about. And, you know, I'm much more interested in speaking with people and hearing about their worldviews than I am about, you know, whether or not these technologies are, are possible. Well, from the more general question of, say, like life extension exists, and this is, I mean, I guess this could be ethical, but not really. But for you, what would be like the biggest issue that you would see arise right away should people let's say let's go the most extreme case where people just don't biologically age like you're 35 you stay at 35 right um i i mean i think the the biggest issue is just inequality right uh, who has access who's gonna have access um you know i've i've read uh so many answers to that question you know well it'll be like trickle down economics you know sure you know people in third world countries aren't going to have the latest mind uploading robotic bodies or, you know, but they'll get the second generation. It'll be fine. And eventually it'll all even out, um, you know, and, and, you know, or by the time we get to that point, then, you know, we'll have already solved poverty and we're not going to need to worry about these things or, or whatever. There's always an answer to these sorts of dilemmas. But not much in human history uh, or recent experience leads me to believe that these sorts of technologies would be equally distributed and that there would not be uh, billions of people completely disadvantaged while a very rich minority of people um, are particularly advantaged by these sorts of technologies. You know, personally, the that is the thing that I am most concerned about. And also along the same lines, you know, questions around enhancement, right? Like who is going to be ultimately disadvantaged when people are able to 
you know, choose the genetic makeup of their children, you know, and, and code for intellect and code for physical ability, right? It, it's going to, like, I, my fear is that it's going to widen any gap that we have, um, you know, between communities of people, between economic classes, um, between countries. So that, that would be my biggest concern. Very often in, I guess, science fiction and movies and TV shows, immortality is portrayed very negatively. You know, there's always something wrong with it, some problem that arises from it, whether it's, you know, due to class differences, amplifications of current day problems, some of which you mentioned. Uh, do you think like these type of depictions that science fiction tends to have, do they have any validity? Are they true? Is it I mean, possible? I think so. I think that they are reflections of legitimate fears that that we have. Um, you know, again, these social justice issues, uh, these issues around who will have access to um, technologies of, of human augmentation or, or immortality. Um, and science fiction, in a lot of ways, is a reflection of the current zeitgeist, right? The current moment, the culture and time that we live in. Um, and so, I don't necessarily fault science fiction for presenting such a dystopic vision of of the future. Um, it doesn't need to go in that direction, right? It, and it, it might not. Um, and there are works of science fiction out there that do depict, you know, positive outcomes. Um, I know that there's a, a web comic about biohacking, or not a web comic, but a graphic novel about biohacking that I think presents a pretty positive picture of you know, what a human enhanced future will will look like. But I think that, yeah, you know, science fiction really is is a reflection of, of our fears. Um, and, and whether those are will, you know, whether those fears will be lived out or not is another question. But I think it's good that people are questioning these things. You know, there there is a certain in, in my opinion, there's a certain amount of uh, techno unquestioned techno optimism in a lot of these communities. And so um, I think it's I think it's important to to look at the the dark side of these uh, of these questions and these issues. Sufal, why don't you ask the last one because I distinctly remember you wanting to ask this one and writing this one. So I'll let you ask before we wrap up for today. For sure. So, do you think life extension should exist? Like, how do you think it would impact all of these religions we have today? I'm sure some would not like it. And do you think any new religions would arise from the fact that you know? Life extension now exists. I'm going to go on the assumption um, that if life extension were a thing, that we would have a certain level of uh, morphological freedom, right? That people would get to choose the types of body that they want, would get to choose whether or not they want to live. Um, and it's something that is not often discussed when people are talking about transhumanism, is that most transhumanists, you know, they, the, vision of immortality that they have is not necessarily for everyone, but not because of class distinctions or, or because of socioeconomic distinctions, but because um, for them, it's really about choice. So if you want to, you know, if you want to die at 20, die at 20. If you want to die at 90, die at 90. If you want to die at 500, die at 500. The important thing for many transhumanists is choice you know, just the ability to do so, um, you know, if you want to. Um, I mean, there's, 
I think a lot of issues that would come up, obviously, if people were to live forever. And a lot of these issues have been answered by a lot of transhumanist thinkers, you know, overpopulation and, and things of, of that nature. Um, and I think it certainly would change the religious landscape. Maybe you would end up having what, you know, William Sims Bainbridge, you know, his, his uh, religion for, um, or his his galactic religious vision, right? You know, maybe we'll end up having something like that. Um, but it, you know, there are a lot of Christian transhumanists, Mormon transhumanists, Buddhist transhumanists who also don't necessarily see a distinction or a problem with their religious worldview and transhumanism. Um, and so, in all likelihood you know, the institutional forms of religion that we know are probably going to, would probably continue to a certain degree. You'll always have theologians arguing against it and you'll always have theologians arguing for it. Um, and people will, you know, the reality is that people self-identify in, in any number of ways, um, but we are very good at integrating many different things, right? That's why you have evangelical Christians that do yoga um, and you have Orthodox Jews that take, you know, that use alternative medicine. Um, I could see the same thing happening with a lot of, you know, a lot of what um, a transhumanist future promises. You know, people will identify as Christian, but integrate, um, you know, integrate a, a belief system or a practice that, you know, adherence to that might self-identify in a different way. Um, we're very good at blending mm -hmm. ideas and, and blending belief systems and, and blending practices. So yeah, I mean, there's a Christian, I think it's too far. We talked about a Christian transhumanist group now. So I'm like, yeah, it's not separate. Um, uh, they've been around for yeah. yeah, the Christian transhumanist association. Um, pretty sure Newton Lee is the one that runs that, or at least he runs the California chapter of that. Um, but yeah, they've been around for a long time. The Mormon transhumanist association has been around for a long time. Um, you know, there's a lot of discourse. I mean, there's a bit too much discourse in my opinion, going on between theology and transhumanism, but there, there's a lot of conversations that are going on within, you know, more institutional and established religions and, um, ideas that, that, uh, transhumanists propose. Well, worst comes to worst. We have, I guess, who is it? Bainbridge Wars or Bainbridge Trek, as it, I guess in your case, Jeremy, <laughs> hopefully it doesn't get to the, the war part, but maybe space will be a thing. I guess to wrap up, cause we've discussed a lot of things today, like death, religion, Chronics, honestly, that list goes on. But if there's one thing you want people to take away from today, what would that be? There's one thing I would want people to take away from today um, would be that engaging with mortality to some degree, given the reality of the world as it is right now, um, is not antithetical to transhumanism. Um, and that you can both hope and anticipate a future of human augmentation and immortality and galactic uh, space travel, uh, but also have open, honest and pragmatic conversations about death and dying, because it is the reality for our world right now. And we are going to have to deal with the loss of uh, the, pe the people that we care about in our in our lives.
So for the audience, I'm sure many of you don't know this, but Jeremy was one of our biggest mentors for helping start I'm Immortal. And the purpose for I'm Immortal was to talk about immortality, escaping death, and as many contacts, religions, cultures as possible, since, you know, it's not necessarily talked about that much. What are some ways you think that the audience could stimulate conversations surrounding death, living longer, and mortality in general? Because it's not something, you know, it's not an everyday topic. Yeah, and a lot of people are hesitant um, to talk about it. Uh, interestingly, in older generations, especially, um, I find there's a lot of hesitancy. I, it really is just talking about it, having conversations with friends, having conversations with family, you know, getting, you know, depending on your age, although people should at any age, but realistically, depending on your age, making sure you have a will, making sure you have an advanced directive um, and making sure that the people in your life know what you want at the end of your life, I think is something that is really, really important. Um, but also reading books, you know, about transhumanism, but also about death and dying, um, taking university courses about death and dying and, and related subjects, you know, just being open to talking about these difficult subjects, um, I think is really, really important. Um, and engaging the people in your life, um, engaging them in these subjects uh, and in, in these difficult conversations, I think is is vital. So for people who are interested in your work, or I guess, yeah, I know you're teaching a bunch of courses this coming year. Um, how can they get involved or learn more about you and your work in general? Yeah, uh, so people can go to my website, um, jeremyfcohen.com um, or go uh, Twitter at jeremyfcohen. Um, and you are free to send me an email. I love talking to anyone who's interested in, in these subjects um, and I'm happy to point people in the right direction, suggest readings. Um, yeah, that would probably be the best way to, to get in touch with me. My, my email address and all my social handles are, are on my website. Great, so for all you guys listening, any of the links or things we discussed today will be in the description below. Once again, thank you, Jeremy, for being on on Immortal. You're a source for all things Immortal. We really appreciate you coming to speak with us today. Oh, thank you, guys. I'm really excited by everything that you guys are doing, and um, I'm, I'm looking forward to everything that comes. Thank you.